Hey, good to see all of you. Happy uh, Thanksgiving. And Lee, thank you for the um, announcement and sharing and just um, your dedication. And I could listen to Lee's voice all day, by the way. He has such a good uh, video voice. Maybe later you could. We should have him do, read scripture for us every Sunday. Anyways, um, now I know why Angela married you. So you read to her at night, maybe a book. Anyways, um, uh, thank you so much, guys. And, you know, when we think about the holidays... Um, already, uh, you think Thanksgiving th- next week and on. Some of you are already a little bit stressed because there's so many things you have to get done. And you think about the things that we're going to be doing. It's all fun stuff. Oh, I got to go to another party. I got to go to the thing at work. I got to host at my house today. My in-laws are coming over. Um, I got to go shopping. I got to go spend money. And you think about all the things, and now you're a little bit stressed. But so much of it often is centered around ourselves. And so we want to make a, an impact, and we want to be the light of this city, right? And so we want to give, and so we want to encourage you to consider um, partnering with these groups. We don't have to do these things. We went out and searched them out and partnered with them, got to hear their stories, and we want to go and just bless them. The stories I remember last year after they got the gifts, the stories, and uh, the faces behind it. Um, it really is uh, a great thing that we are doing. And so um, do as you are able to. Some of you, we had someone last year um, or two years ago at our Brea Church, you know, take like a stack of like I think 20 or 30 kids and wanted to buy it for everyone. And for some of you, you can. Some of you, it might be just one. Um, but do something and uh, go out to one of the events and go do something. I think it'll be so valuable to you. Um, and this is part of our discipleship, right? And this is part of our growth. So we want to encourage you to do that. You know, um, last week I um, had my uh, gardener over in uh, our backyard. We have a little patch of grass, right? And after we brought Daisy into our house, the little patch of grass is basically her domain, right? This is her area, and she uses this bathroom. And we've never upkept it. And... Uh, it's gotten really bad, um, and uh, so we asked him, can you make it grass again? It's just weeds and just really dead, and uh, he said, well, we got to pull all the weeds out, and he looked at it and looked at it. He said, you know what? Actually, i got to kill this whole thing. There's too many weeds. i gotta, I got to just kill everything off, and then I'll plant the seeds and fertilizer after, or else it's not going to work, um, and I was like, yeah, sure, and you know, I was thinking about that, you know, and for us as we gather on this Thanksgiving, as we think about gratitude to, towards Christ, um, on this day, there are certain weeds, I guess, we have to pull out. Right? There are things that hinder growth, um, hinder gratitude. And maybe you're at church today, and maybe you sometimes, to be honest, you have to be forced into gratitude you know, and thankfulness. And, um, but you worked hard you know, for what you have and, and these types of thoughts. And there are certain weeds, if I could say, that we have to all be vigilant and watch out for because it creeps up, and we don't plant the weeds Right? We don't put weed seeds into our grass. They just show up, and they just spread. And then before you know, they'll just take over. And so as you are all working hard, and you are all trying your best, and as you are doing life, we all have to be very careful and vigilant that these weeds don't take over, and we become people who forget to give thanks. You know, there's this story here. This is not a parable. This is an actual encounter. An encounter here, Jesus meets what the, the title of the ESV will say, a rich young ruler. Um, and in it, we see 
these four, um, and we could say they're really part of one family, right? These four um, weeds, if I could say, power, pride, uh, self-righteousness, and riches. And all of them are somewhat interconnected. They're all kind of cousins, if you could say. Um, but yet, these four sins sneak up, and they hinder someone from coming to Christ. Think about this. He meets Jesus Christ face to face, and he walks away disheartened. He meets the most beautiful, the creator, the most loving his own maker, he meets him face to face, and yet these four sins creep in, and he walks away from him. You would think, who would walk away from Christ? And yet these four things uh, keep him away, and I want to um, highlight that for us today. Make sure we are vigilant against these four things. The number one that we see is power, the concept of power. The more power we have, the easier it is to think that I am in charge, I am in control. Power is a control thing. You know, you look at um, this story, and in the Gospels, uh, in Luke and Matthew and Mark, they all record this interaction. And in Luke's story, it tells us that in chapter 18, 18 of Luke, that it was a ruler that came. So Mark doesn't tell us this, but Luke tells us a ruler showed up. This word ruler is used to describe... Um, those who are religious leaders in the synagogue. So he was a, a ruler. He was someone that had answers, someone who had authority, someone who was in charge. He was the boss in a way. He was respected. And so he had power in this way. The second thing we see about him, that he was a, a young man. Matthew's uh, rendition of the story puts in that little uh, interesting fact in Matthew 19.20. A young man came to him. So he was a ruler not only that, he was a young man. One commentator says he's probably somewhere between his early 20s to 40. So let's assume he's in his 30s, right? Some of us are in our 30s. Some of us just look like we're in our 30s, but we're far from it, right? All of you look like you're at least, you know, in your 20s, late 20s. Okay, um, hope you feel better about that. Anyway, so, um, uh, but here is a guy who is, let's say, 30-some years old. He gets promoted to be a ruler in the synagogue. We're not sure exactly what kind of ruler, but he's some kind of ruler. He has power. He is proud. He's achieved so much at a young age. And we know certain people like that. Boy, at a, at he's only 30-something, and he's got elected to this office, or he got promoted to this position. And he comes to Christ. And that could be a hindrance. And maybe you have worked so hard. And maybe you have achieved certain things. Um, and you say, boy, you know, I, I've, I've really arrived. I've made it. I have so much. And it is so important that we be careful. And if you have any kind of power at work, you get promoted to something. You're the manager. You're the boss. People come to you with questions and you give the answers. We have to guard ourselves that we think that we, the power lies within us. It's outside of us. The second thing sin that we see here that kept this young man away is his pride. Um, it's interesting because the question he asks to Jesus in verse 17 is this, and he said, and he was sitting, this is Jesus, he was sitting out on his journey. A man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And there's so much here. First of all, the question he asks is wrong. The title he uses to Christ is wrong. Good teacher. 
And then the question he asks is a prideful question. What can I do? What must I do? And look at the whole question. What must I do to inherit? How do I become a recipient of the inheritance? And inheritance is given. It's not earned. So the question itself is wrong, but it is a prideful question. What can I do? And all of us in our independent, self-sufficient world, we like to solve our own problems. We like to go to God. What can I do? What do you want me to do? And this young man feels some form of emptiness, and he's done a lot, he's achieved a lot, but he says, boy, I would just want to make sure there's eternal life for me. Maybe there's certain, something else I could do. Maybe another degree. Maybe I have to study a little bit more. Maybe I have to go and offer some more money. Maybe I have to do these things. What must I do? And he is coming with an attitude of a guy who has much to offer. Jesus, what must I do? And Jesus replies to him. And this reply is so full of meaning. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Why do you call me good? No one is good except for God alone. I think he's telling him two things here. He's not denying his deity. I think he's telling him, number one, um, why do you call me good? Only God is good. You think you are good. You think you have something good, but in comparison to God, you are no good. And so he is putting this young man in this position. Why do you call me good? Only God is good. You are not God. And the second part is he is pointing to himself. You call me good teacher. Do you know if only God is good and you call me good, that must make Jesus Christ God? And so he is pointing out to his own identity. So he says, why do you call me good? Do you think that you are so good? Do you think that you've achieved so much? And you want to come and do something for God? You know, the psychologists have this term called the rule of reciprocation. Right? And so this idea of the rule of reciprocation in society, and sociologists talk about this often, is that, hey, if someone does something for you, we have the tendency in modern society to want to do something back for them. You scratch my back, I want to scratch your back. Friend buys me lunch, and next time I'm going to pay for lunch. And we say, say oh, no, no, I got, I got this. You bought me last time, I've got this. Right? I'm going to pay for this. No, you treated me last time, I'm going to treat you back. And we have a sense that we want to give back. And so instead of words... That should just sometimes be thank you. It's like we say things like, oh, uh, you know, I owe you. I got you next time. See, thank you is saying, boy, I'm down here. But when I say to someone, no, I'll get you back next time. Oh, thanks. I'll spot you next time. Hey, thanks. You know, um, you know I'm indebted to you. The idea is, boy, it's a little less than the thank you. It's saying, I'm going to get back to you. And one of the psychologists did a, uh, a little kind of an experiment, and he sent out Christmas cards to all these people within his school department that he didn't know personally, and he sent out 100 Christmas cards to strangers, had his return address, wrote him Merry Christmas, wrote his name, and sent it out. Almost all these strangers, right, to prove his point, they all write back a Christmas card back to him, right, just because he sent them a Christmas card. So, hey, if you're not getting enough Christmas cards, just start sending them to strangers, right, um, and you'll get a bunch, right? You want those pictures of strangers all over your, you know, fridge, just start sending them out. Just send them out to, just go down the list and pass them out. Just put your return address, right? And they'll send them back to you. That is the law of reciprocation. Now, the danger is, and it could be a good thing with our, our human uh, social lives, but the danger is when we bring that attitude towards God. 
God, what can I do for you? God, you did this for me. How can I repay you? Um, God, what is the right formula for you, for me to sacrifice? Should I give you more offering at church? Should I go and get up earlier to pray? Should I go and do all these things of be generous? God, I'm paying you back. And most of the world today still do not fully grasp the gospel. It's not what I do for God, it's what God has done for me. And we have to be very careful before we come to church and say, boy, what's the list of to-dos? Pastor, give me the list of to-dos so I can be acceptable to God. But it's what he has done for me. Uh, J.M. Najordi is a um, scholar uh, from Nigeria, and he has this quote. He talks about this a little bit. And I just want to read this quote for us. Um, the spirit of thanksgiving runs against the temptation we face as human beings to assert our self-sufficiency. Few of us enjoy the feeling of indebtedness, a fact easily demonstrated by our oft unsolicited readiness to return a favor once someone has expressed kindness to us. I owe you, I'll return the favor, I'm in your debt, are some ways in which we express this attitude. He says this, and I love what he says. Uh, Such responses together with the more modest one. Please let me know what I can do for you. Allow us to express gratitude. And I love this. It allows us to express gratitude without acknowledging the chronic shadow of dependence. And he says this. Not only does this inability to express gratitude without our own autonomy, stealing the show, sometimes rob of us the joy of affirming the contribution of others to our well-being. It also shrivels up our desire to worship God. You know, in the very previous passage in Mark, the children come running. Let the children come. And there is this contrast here. Children come running. This man comes dignified. Um, Dallas Willard says the one thing that he loves about children is they haven't learned to fix their face. Right? Isn't that true? They let you know how they feel. You go try to go, go during lunch, try to go and hug one of the little kids. They'll let you know how they feel about you, like right away. Um, and there are many babies at church. You know, my wife will go pick them. They're happy, and I go over, and they just start, you know, straight arm. You know, like, I don't want you. Um, they'll let you know. And they'll let you know if they want something, need something. And... They take, and they don't try to pay you back. Have your children ever tried to pay you back? No, they never try to pay me back. They take. Um, so, you know, and, and they'll, but they'll make these audacious statements. Uh, my younger one was always asking me, like, Dad, can I see your phone? And she has her own phone, but she says, can I see your phone? The value of my phone is it has Amazon connected to it, right? And she doesn't. She goes, can I see your phone? I just want to check something. I said, uh-oh, you're going to check something. And then, you know, I know step two and three. Why do you want to check it? You know, you don't need to check it. You can check it on yours because I just want to check it on your phone. And then she texts it, oh, can I get this pimple patch? Right? She loves buying pimple patches. I was like, I need it. And I was like, she's 13 now. I was like, okay. I was like, how much is it? She goes, only five bucks. But if I buy the pack of four, it's only 19 bucks. <laughs> and, you know, it's like press, press here and to, you can buy it. And she's like, can I get it? Can I get it? Who's going to pay for it? She goes, I'll pay you back. I was like, well, where are you getting, the, you know, and that, by that point, I'm like, where are you getting this money? I got lots of money. I'll pay you back. Right? And like, you can't pay me back. Um, I got money hidden all over my room. I'll pay you back. And, 
she's never paid me back, you know? And I, I, to my youngest, I'm like, yeah, yeah, sure, yeah, go ahead, go ahead, get it. Um, children do that. The young man here comes with all his riches, with all the things that he could try to impress God with and say, God, what can I do? God is not impressed with any of us. God is not impressed with our good works and our good deeds and, boy, our good voices and our good looks and the way our family looks. He's not impressed with this. We have to come to him in humility. It is Paul who says so emphatically in Ephesians 2.8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. This is the core of the gospel. This humbles us. I bring nothing to the table, and he gives me an inheritance. The third thing we see here of this guy is the the fruit or the child of pride is self-righteousness. We see uh, the self-righteousness. Jesus follows that statement, and he starts going down this list of commandments from the Ten Commandments. We know there are ten. He only lists a few. The first four of the ten deal with us and God, right? Uh, no other gods before you, no image, keep the Sabbath holy, you know, keep his name holy. So it's about our vertical relationship. But the next six is all about horizontal. And he goes over this and he says in verse 19, You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And this is his answer. Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. He says, I've kept all of them from my youth. Maybe, let's say, all of them since he was 10. All of them since he was 11. He actually believes that he hasn't broken God's law since he was in his youth. And this is laughable. Right? I think this is written in here so that it is, shows how blind he is. If someone comes up to you and says, boy, I've been perfect since my youth. You say, come on, get out of here, Right? You know, your, your mom didn't raise you right. Like, you know, no way. None of our friends can come up to you and say, boy, I, I have just been law keeper and without sin since my youth. And you say, get out of here, man. You're lying right now. You're already broken the, you know, Ten Commandments. That's what he points to. He makes it now evident by him asking that question. Jesus knows his heart. He says, let me see where your heart is. Oh, I've already, I've done all these things. And it's easy for us to come to God and try to impress him with our Self-righteousness. I've, I, I, I've done all these things. I'm pretty good. I'm better than most. What he points to, though, it's interesting. Jesus doesn't even ask him the first four of the Ten Commandments. Because he already knows in his heart that his God is not God, but his God is his self-righteousness, his possessions, his money. And that's what he points to. Right, so the very next thing, now, some have read this and they feel guilty. Wow, Jesus tells me to give away all my wealth, all my possessions. I'm supposed to go sell everything, give it to the poor. That's so hard to do. This was a lesson for him because he is now holding on to these possessions as his God, as his idol. And he's saying, you shall have no other idols, no other gods before God himself. And he points out to his riches. And we have to be so very careful here. Being rich is not a bad thing. Making money is not a bad thing. Saving money is not a bad thing. But it is something that could sneak up on us. Um, to the point this guy walks away from Christ. Now look at this. It says here in verse 21, Jesus looking at him, loved him. And I love 
love that he loved him. It's almost like a heartbreak for him. And said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. He points to his God. He goes, oh, you've kept all the commandments? Really? Well, let me just go back to one. You shall have no other gods before me. Go and get rid of this God. Come follow me. I can't. I can't follow you. This is my God. The Bible is filled with warnings about money. I heard uh, um, Andy Stanley once talk about wealth, and he says, boy, if you were to go and uh, get it at a drugstore, and if it was a prescription for wealth, and you were going to get a pill of wealth pills, right? It would, the warning, the side effects would be so much, right? You could imagine. And it could cause pride. It could make you, you know, look down on others and this and that and insensitive. And there would be so much of a list um, when it comes to wealth. And so we have to be so very careful in the things that we have. The Bible is filled with sayings like this, you know, 1 Timothy 6.17. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God. Proverbs 30, verse 8. He asks for two things, right? He says, give me these two things. Number one, remove far from me falsehood and lying. Secondly, give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? This is the effect that money can have, that if I have so much, I might deny you and say, who is the Lord? And so we come before God, um, and in order to be grateful, we have to handle our possessions. We have to handle it with an open hand before God. Um, before the, you know, the Trumps and all, the original moguls in New York were the Wendell family. The Wendell family uh, in 1859. John Wendell left behind about $3 million of real estate to his son, John II, and seven daughters. They inherit this money. The son and the daughters are so caught up, and the son is so controlling of the money, he forbids all his sisters, all seven, you can't get married, because once you get married, we have to split it now. So he doesn't allow any of them to get married. None of them get married. He said, we don't want you to have kids, because then they're going to take some more money. And they live infamously in this one house. And the house that they lived in had no electricity. He would use gas lamps still in the house. When the telephones were going around, they refused to put in a telephone. And they would close their shutters tight. And when the cars were coming around, they refused to buy a car. And he lived this way. And when the, as they all started passing away, the last sister was left. And they find the last sister, uh, 18, uh, 1931, when she had died, and even the house itself was worth $100 million, they said. Just the house. And their whole family was worth billions. She died, and they found on her, she was wearing an outfit that she had knit and made herself to save money, and she dies in that outfit. Uh, they get together, they don't, the courts get together, and they give this money away to charities because there's no one for them to leave to. Money has power to just say, it's my God, I bow to this. And today, as we come 
to give thanks to God, uh, man, let's make sure we search our hearts and ask Jesus Christ, God, you be the God of my life. Don't let any of these things hinder from my gratitude, a heart of thanksgiving, from flourishing to you. Amen. Let's make this a meaningful thanksgiving. Let's pray together. Lord, we give you um, all that we are and all that we have because uh, we are so grateful and you give us all that we have. It's all yours. God, we lay down our pride. We lay down our self-righteousness because, Lord, uh, you only are good. So, Lord, we work hard. Uh, God, we, we go and we make money and we do these things, and these are all good things you give to us, and we are grateful to you for those things. But, Lord God, they are not you. And we do not and will not walk away from you disheartened to chase some other gods. So, God, we uh, ask that you remind us of that this week. We want to be grateful to you this week. You give us everything that matters to us. So with that grateful heart, we come to you today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.